Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Kurt Schilling Baseball Show, show number 26. Lots to get to, lots to talk about, and we'll get right to it. One of the things, for those of you that have listened since the show started, I said repeatedly in spring training, I said repeatedly through April uh, and early May that the guys that our stars, the teams that are good, for the mo- they'll end up where they're supposed to be. Whether it be uh, an incredibly hot Tampa Bay or a struggling St. Louis, the good teams will figure it out because they're good man. They have good managers and all things go with that. With one exception, that's happening. Cardinals have won 11 to 14 as of taping uh, out of the basement in the NL Central, and they in a, they hit seven home runs, beat the LA 16 to eight. In game one of the series, took three or four from the Dodgers and now five back in the Brewers. The Cardinals are going to be fine. You know, the question becomes how this unbalanced schedule is going to impact the playoff races as far because I, I really honestly believe the AL East is going to have five teams over 500. I think everybody with this unbalanced schedule, I think you're going to see the have nots really struggling. And uh, Kurt, I saw today the run, run differential in the American League East. Everybody's positive. Yeah. Yeah, and that's not it. We're mid to late May now, so numbers are starting to. If you're a hitter that has struggled through a, a you know a 190 April, we're getting about the time when it's irreparable. If you're a team that's 10 games out, you're probably out. And if you're a hitter that's hitting 200 and you're usually a 290 career hitter, you're going to have to have a monster rest of the year to hit 275. So uh, it's kind of a cutoff line. Uh, of a sense. I think, you know, June 1st for me is usually, hey, it is what it is and they are who they are. Uh, and there are a couple teams who, and and I've said it, Bill, since day one, the O's went into Toronto and dominated and improved their road record to 16 and eight. Uh, they have 18 come from behind wins, which is kind of ridiculous in a month and a half. They're at the top third of Major League Baseball in pitching, hitting. They don't lead in any, which is not a problem. Their run differential is plus 41 which is sixth. They start a three-game series in New York versus the Yankees. They're real. They're, this is a real team. I think Adley Rushman might be the best player in baseball all around. When you can consider and, 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 and include offense, defense, and off-the-field stuff, I think if you're starting a franchise, he'd be one of the two or three guys whose name you would probably start with. And it's real. Like I said, I think he's Joe Maurer with a little more power. And Joe Maurer is a borderline Hall of Fame player. I just want to see the kids stay healthy because he's a special, special talent. And and they have young talent in the big leagues, a lot of young players, but those comeback wins and those come from behind wins are things that fuel a young team and get them into a place where they're never out, you know, bottom of the eighth down three. The game's not over for them. Whereas, they're, you know, other teams are like, okay, you know, this is a situation where, yeah, let's go get them tomorrow. They don't have that. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with with what's going on on the field, but I think off the field as well. And you know what? On a personal note, I am happy as hell for the people of Baltimore. This is a fan base that deserves a winner. Um, they've been butchered by a horrific ownership for too long. It hasn't really changed, but their scouting department, the baseball department has overcome their ownership deficiencies to make this a very, very good team. And I think that as long as they can stay healthy, they could be somebody. And in and, and talking about that, and, and obviously managerially, they're being – well run. Something happened in uh, Toronto on Saturday against the Orioles that it's not a big deal in the overall sense, but it is a, a kind of a, a snapshot into good and bad managers. And I don't mean bad in the sense that you can't manage a game, but something happened Saturday that would never happen to a Buck Showalter, would never happen to a Terry Francona or a Bob Melvin. John Schneider went out to do a mound visit in the sixth inning with Alex Manoa and unbeknownst to him, which I'm not sure how, 
But unbeknownst to him, uh, it was the second visit, which by the new rules necessitated a pitching change. Uh, Dan Isagna approached the mound to relay the fact that this was Toronto's second mound visit of the inning. Major League Baseball prohibits managers from visiting the mound twice. The second mound visit requires a pitching change. They were forced to remove him from the game, which was tied 2-2. Obviously, Manoa was frustrated. That's inexcusable. Like I said, you won't see a good manager ever do something like that. Number one, because great managers usually have great bench coaches who are situationally aware and who are there for just those sort of things, you know. Fast forward to September, you're a game out or you end up a game back of the playoffs. Think about that. Well, uh, imagine if Manoa was having an even better start than he was having. Five and two thirds in, he'd only thrown 84 pitches. He'd think about up this. a couple of runs and, and six more importantly, hits, but... Right. More importantly, you have to bring a reliever out of the bullpen who wasn't up getting loose. And he only had 85 pitches. He was throwing a good game. That's all beside the most important point of that is you can't, that can never happen as a big league manager. I can get, you know, as a first time manager in the minor leagues. Yeah, I understand certain things. Those are the kind of things you learn in the minor leagues. You can't learn those things in the big leagues though. The Mets who uh, had a little bit of a resurgence, uh, not a coincidence that it's probably coinciding with Scherzer and Verlander coming back. They had a double uh, double header, uh, swept the Guardians. Five straight wins, all coming from behind. Those things are, that, that's energy. <laughs> that's pure energy. Scherzer went six innings of three-hit shutout ball in game one. Mets won 5-4. Uh, Verlander gave up a run in the first, went eight. Uh, and they won 2-1 in the second game. It was the first time a Mets pitcher's gone eight this inning. Eight innings this year. We're, we're in late May. But the Mets are 25 and 23 now, and they're five games back. So Mets fans are stepping back from the ledge. Uh, as they should. And again, the teams I think that we all thought would be good are good with, with one exception. Uh, and I'll get to them real quick. Uh, Marlins beat the Giants one nothing. And here's the amazing stat. They're 24 and 22, but they are 15 and two in one run games with a minus 54 run differential. That tells me that they have a monstrously talented bullpen and probably a rotation that is getting its butt handed to it far off more often than it needs to be. Kind of a side note for you Giant fans, Logan Webb came out of the game. It was his first no decision of the year. He threw seven innings in his last three starts prior to this, four of his past five. But he came out after 91 pitches with discomfort in his side. The pain lingered into Saturday, and uh, manager Gabe Kapler said he might need to skip a start. Uh, so do with that what you will. Jose Altuve is back, and the Astros won 10-11, which, again, we knew they'd be good. Uh, and they're going to, again, come back. 27 and 19, two games back of the Rangers, by the way, the Rangers, and they are who they are. The one outlier in all the teams we thought, and and I wouldn't have seen this coming, uh, main, mainly because of the next conversation, which we're going to have is about managers. The Padres are 3-11 in their last 14. Tatis is back, Soto's hitting, Machado just went on the DL with a fractured hand. They're 21 and 26, seven and a half games back. And I would tell you, it would probably be a time to start being concerned if you're a Padres fan. I'm sure if you if maybe we'll delve into this on on Friday's show, but you're going to find some core reasons why they are what they are and who they are with with regards to starting pitching their bullpen and their offense and lineup and hitting with runners in scoring position, defensive runs saved and things like that. So yeah, it's time to worry. Quick uh, uh I, I we talked baseball and this is baseball with a little politics involved. The Dodgers uh were having a, a pride night L.A. of all places, by the way. Imagine that. And apparently they disinvited a group of people that incensed the LGBTQ plus. What is the plus again, Bill? I'm the wrong person to ask. Okay, yeah, I am too, because I don't know what the plus stands for. Anyway, 
The uh, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, a charity that raises uh, money for LGBT causes. I'm not sure what the causes are. They uh, they perform in drag dressed as nuns. They were initially set to receive a Community Hero Award only in L.A., only in L.A. And uh, they were disinvited. And apparently a large and I'm going to use air quotes, a large group of members of that community were incensed and mad. My guess would be anywhere from six to nine people decided not to attend because I'm pretty sure that the LGBTQ plus community isn't a uh, a significant chunk of the fan base in Major League Baseball. Um, since sports represents everything, a lot of them hate. But a conservative Catholic advocacy group, Catholic Vote, was among the fiercest critics of this group. It's the left being played in their own game, and they hate it. Think of all the protests and standoffs that they have with a Ben Shapiro or or Clay Travis or somebody speaking who they disagree with. They protest, they get violent, and they do things that are uh, illegal. Uh, this is a group of people protesting the LGBTQ group. And uh, the Dodgers, being a privately owned business, can do whatever they want. And they disinvited them. And there was a group of eight to 10 people that were really pissed. So my, just... my question to you, Kurt, is does this affect the players at all? No, no. Zero, no, right? None. Zero. Many of them maybe never even knew about it, except for the fact I know for a fact everybody in the L.A. media was asking the players about this controversy. This was just like when, uh, was it the Tampa, uh, oh my gosh, the NHL team that, was it Ottawa that had the pride jerseys? Uh, and the Tampa Bay Rays had the yeah. pride jerseys and like three players didn't do it. And the whole story wasn't about the pride night. It was about the pl- three players that didn't wear the jersey. You know, the media being uh, insanely left-leaning and hardcore progressive will focus the topic, whether it is the focus of the, the, the outrage or not, on something that's irrelevant and people don't care about. So... There's that top five managers I ever played for. So I I went into this list and I wrote down and I ended up with like 12 or 15 names. And, and what it came down to be is, is I'm going to give you my top five managers. And for the most part, I'll I'll comment on each one of them and what they, why they're on the list, but then this grew into a bigger list and a list that I just felt like I had to include. And, And that is coaches and potential managers that I played for all the way through. Uh, who were hugely influential in my career. So so you can imagine uh, my top five managers start with Frank Kona and Buck Showalter. Uh, I think Tito was the best player manager I've ever been around. People manager, best clubhouse guy, um, just best all around. Uh, most repulsively disgusting sense of humor of any manager I ever had. Um, and uh, just one quick story. This was This was Tito's sense of humor. In Boston, Tito had a small office and he had his bathroom in on the right side of his office with a door. Tito would call a player in for a meeting while he was in the bathroom, sitting on the pooper with the door wide open, naked. And he you would walk into his office, he'd go, yeah, come here a minute. And it would be like, no, I'm, I'm not coming there. I'm, I'm gonna stand right here and you're gonna talk to me from there because you're sick. Uh, and that was just his sense of humor. Um, and told some of the greatest Michael Jordan stories of all time. Buck Showalter, probably, not probably, the best hands-down in-game manager at any level I ever played with. Played against, played around, any coat, anything. Buck Showalter manages a game better than any any manager I've ever been. He, I, I would always say, if you're a, a fan of a Buck Showalter managed team, your team will always have the right hitter at the plate and the right pitcher on the mound in the right situation. Whether the players execute or not, that's a different story, but 
by far best game manager I ever played with and uh, came a long way from the, the the rumors and innuendo early in his career to to where he is now. And hats off to him. Uh, I think the guy was part of building two world championship clubs and then was fired before they became those clubs uh, in New York and Arizona. But a uh, phenomenal manager. Um, Frank Robinson was the first manager I played for in the big leagues. And let me, I'll, I'll say this, uh, and this is all personal. Frank wasn't a very good in-game manager. Um, and, and come to find out, much like Pete Rose, it was for this reason. Hall of Fame caliber players found it very hard to understand why everyday players couldn't do the simple things. And for example, if if there's a run on first base and you want the hitter to hit to the right side, Frank would be like, just hit the ball to the right side. And people would be like, well, it's not actually that easy. He's like, no, it is. Just hit the ball to the right side. Like he couldn't understand why players couldn't execute fundamental things that were just run of the mill to him. Um, but for me, he was a career changer. He was so good to me. Uh, off the field uh, discussions that we had, he didn't let me slide. And the time in my life when I had just lost my father, he was an enormously influential person in my life. Oh, and, and, became, and stayed. we stayed very close friends for a long time. Now, the fifth guy, or the fourth guy. Wait, before you go yeah. on, Kurt, you, go you told me on one of these shows that you have a number of great Frank Robinson stories. Yes. I need one right here. Okay. So, so uh, in 19, I want to say it was 88. I got called up. This was the year the Orioles were uh, 0-21 to start the season. That was the year I got traded and, and came to the big leagues. In 1989, it had to be 89, I think. Anyway, Mickey Tettleton's having the career a career year. And he's having a monster season. It's mid to late in the year. And Phil Bradley had just come off the disabled list. And now uh, you have to understand this dynamic. When Frank would make a change, he would basically lean over. Like, so if he's if Frank's sitting here on the bench is that way. Frank would lean over from his seat and point down to the bench. And players would then begin to play a game of me, me. Like he wouldn't say anybody, he wouldn't say anything. He'd just point. And everybody would be like, what? And they'd be looking at themselves. And 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 so he'd wait till the right guy pointed and go, yeah, he'd point him like you. And so Phil comes off the disabled list that night. And uh, he, Frank points at him. And Phil had wanted Frank to go pinch run at first base. And Phil went up and pinch hit for Mickey Tettleton with the bases loaded. Frank doesn't understand it until it's announced. And then he's flipping out and it's like oh my god what happened what you know and and so sure enough phil uh hits a grand slam and after the game frank says to the media well you know i wanted to get him in a bat that meant something in in a pressure situation and everybody's like wait what that's not what happened like it was one of those and that was frank in a nutshell we used to, they used to have in the bullpen they used to have a a, a pot a, a a pool and it was over under and it was the inning because Frank was was a, an older guy when he was managing. And it, the over under was and they used to take glasses to the bullpen, field glasses, binoculars. And the over under was what inning they'd catch Frank falling asleep first. And and he because he would not off every now and then during a the game. Um, but a great, a great, great man. Great man. Um, number four uh, on the list is a guy who I feel like 
well, he's a great manager now. And he wasn't actually a manager when I played, but he was. It, it, the Bob Melvin was the uh, bench coach in Arizona in 2001. And I think he was probably one of the most pivotal and instrumental people from a coaching perspective on why that team won. You could see it in everything he did, everything he said, his whole action. And Bob Melvin, by the way, was one of my catchers in when I first came to the big leagues in 1988, uh, 89. Um, just a tremendous – he had manager written all over him, and it was obvious then. Um, and then the fifth one is a guy probably many of you never heard of. His name's Dick Berardino. Dick was a manager of mine in Greensboro, North Carolina, in uh, low A ball, and a lifer uh, to this. I actually talked to him a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, we stay in touch. He was a a hugely instrumental and pivotal person in my life. Um, at a time in my life when I needed uh, my ass kicked a little bit, um, and we stay friends to this day, uh, and and have stayed friends, and and I will always remember what he did for me. Uh, and I have a list of guys here, and I'll go down this list. These are, in no order, these are some of the best coaches I ever played with, played for. Um, and I think I mentioned him last show. Brian Butterfield in Arizona was one of my favorite human beings of all time. Uh, he of the naked three-point stance with the Michigan football helmet. John Vukovic uh, in Philadelphia was probably the closest thing I had to to a father when I played uh, and an enormously influential and instrumental guy in my career, Johnny Padres uh, turned my career around in a 20 minute bullpen session and nothing was ever the same after that. And he was the foundation of my big league career. What uh, did Bill he Lemonson, do to turn your career around? He, he was just himself. He had a way about himself. I threw a 20 minute bullpen, my first bullpen after being traded in the rain, in Miami, in the old uh, uh, or in Washington, I'm sorry, in uh, the old stadium there, I I, I came to uh, to the team the next day. I threw a bullpen. He went down there with me, and 20 minutes later, I walked off the mound, knowing that I could like be really, really good. And it was a 20 minute confidence session that I've never ever experienced. And it was that's I, awesome. It was unbelievable. It was I, I went down there, uh, Kurt Schilling, the traded guy for Jason Grimsley, and came back out of that bullpen as a future number one starter mentally. And it was all due to his mouth and comments for 20 minutes. Um, Bill Lemoncelli was my first professional manager in rookie ball at Elmira. He was without a doubt, one of the most influential in my young career. Cause it was, he was my introduction to baseball. He was very much like my first two managers were short Italian guys. And I think that was on purpose. I think the Red Sox had that set up that way. Um, Larry Boa, the most pissed off, red ass, negative human being I've ever been around. Um, but a winner, period. Just a winner. And couldn't understand and accept anybody that wasn't a winner. Um, Glenn Sherlock was a, a, a bullpen coach in Arizona who became a coach, a bench coach. Phenomenal human being. Great guy. Very influential for me as well. Uh, Johnny Oates was in 1990, was a man, was a coach. Uh, in in Baltimore and uh, had manager written all over him. Unfortunately, died way too young um, uh, of brain cancer, uh, but a phenomenal, phenomenally influential guy. Bob Clock, my pitching coach in uh, Houston, great guy. Uh, I remember I got sent down uh, after uh, in May when I was in 1991 after I'd been traded and I was in AAA and I was I was having a great time in triple a pitching wise 
and I was pissed. And I called, I called Bob. I'll never forget this on the payphone. And I said, you know what? Tell them to just trade me or release me. This is ridiculous. And I had no business doing making this phone call. But he said, let me tell you something, Shell. He said, a broken bat single in the big leagues is a horseshit pitch. A line drive out is a great pitch. And and in, in that I never forgot that quote because it was true. Uh, it was all about results. And and he was someone who kind of got me uh, righted in a time and a place when I really needed it. Um, and the last one, and not the least, there's other guys I've forgotten, I'm sure. Galen Sisko was my pitching coach, was a pitching coach for me in Philadelphia. Uh, he was uh, a phenomenal he was a two-way All-American uh, football player at Ohio State, uh, and he was the blocking fullback for who, Bill? Hopalong Cassidy. Hopalong Cassidy. He was the captain of the Ohio State football team. Uh, he was the and, – and you would have never guessed any of this if you knew Galen. Galen was a very quiet, reserved guy who I think probably could snap your head off at the, at the, at the joint uh, without – any effort. Great guy, super guy. Really um it was kind of in a tough place because I was a veteran when he came there and I think he was a younger coach from a a, a time perspective, but he was also a really just a really good guy and 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 a, a guy who uh who who helped me along. Uh by no means an all-encompassing list, but those are some of the men that uh I got to be around and and be in all of them were major influences in my life and there were many more. So Billy, we'll be back on Friday, and we will do another uh, top five list. You guys keep uh, – the other list I had here was five best starts of my career. I got so many different things uh, and so many topics. We're going to do a ton of those. And um, keep sending them to us, please. Yes, please. If you want a top five list, just ask. I'm not going to do a top five worst of anything because I'm not going to talk disparagingly. I had one bad teammate in 22 years, so I'm not going to do any stupid list like that. This is going to be fun and, and meant to – to prop people up. So we'll see you guys on Friday, outkick.com. Check out uh, shows on outkick.com. You can find the Kurt Schilling Baseball Show and Spotify. We're on Spotify as well. So you guys have a great week. Billy, talk to you on Friday, my friend. 